Hello and welcome to 177 Nations of Tasmania. Now Kenya is perhaps best known for its elite long distance runners and safari parks. It's a country that's had its share of challenges since gaining independence from Britain in 1963. And it's also the third largest economy in sub-Saharan Africa after Nigeria and South Africa. Now my guest for this episode is Cecilia, who grew up in a small town in Kenya surrounded by a big family group living a largely rural lifestyle surrounded by animals and vegetable gardens cecilia was able to do well in school and her education path would eventually lead her to take up postgraduate study in melbourne and since 2020 she has been working in the health industry in launceston tasmania so please join me to hear more about cecilia's story from life in kenya to life in tasmania I'm originally from Kenya, so that's sort of East Africa. I grew up in a town called Nakuru, Mm -hmm. which is um, two hours drive from the capital Nairobi. I grew up on a farm, so lots of cows and everything else between. Just typical childhood of playing. Uh, I didn't didn't have any sort of sisters, so I grew up with boys, did all things um, boys would do and not do. But yeah, pretty much on a farm. Yeah. So what were some of your favorite activities in, in that when you were a child on the farm? What sort of things did you get up to? I think we should probably start with what I did not like to do. So, okay. <laughs> so um, no, I think I think growing up on a farm as a as a as a young as a young girl, as a young child, you quite you quite enjoy everything. I think I think we had lots lots of animals, uh, not so much a big farm, but lots lots of animals. And I was lucky to live with my um, paternal grandmother. So who sort of, you know, shaped us or um, shaped me on, you know, what, what to do, how to look after animals. So I think my most favorite one, you know, looking after rabbits, um, uh, getting all the um, veggies for, from the farm for them. Mm-hmm. I never ma- uh, liked looking after the cows. And I think that was more of a boy's job. So whenever I would feel like I want to do it and get into mischief with the boys, mm-hmm. that's when I'd, I'd go in and look after the cows. But I think I, I loved the rabbits and definitely the dogs, um, the ducks as well. So you had a lot of different types of animals on the farm. Yeah, so lots lots of different things on a sort of not, not again, not on a large scale, just little back in the day we used to call all the time that they use is domestic farming so little mm-hmm. little bits of everything just in small small numbers so it was mostly the the food was mostly for the family not for like selling so from the farm produce some of the food would be supplied because i my my town is also a tourist destination mm-hmm. so we would supply um some of the surplus to the hotels okay. um yeah but mainly it was for for just family feeding and all that and, and what sort of vegetables are typical of um so you, you've got your your leafy vegetables so kale kale is a kale okay. we eat, we eat lots of kale um cabbage uh, lots of veggies we we grew we grew lots mainly for the hotels and that's where you you know i you found your radishes your beets your beetroots parsley um, so all that I grew I grew up with because um, we'd grow for the hotels, like I said. So there was lots of different things that would grow. And and my father travelled a lot, so I think mm-hmm. <laughs> part of him travelling was he would always bring seeds from different okay. um, food seeds um, to plant. So we we grew different things just mainly to service the demand for the hotels. 
Uh, but yeah, your typical um, food was just the veggies, like I said, cabbage, kale, corn, which we refer to as maize um, mm-hmm. back, yep. back there, which is, which is a staple. Food. So it sounds quite a healthy lifestyle, really. Yes, it is, um, as long as you eat what you grow and not sell most of it. So I think the staple, the staple food was ugali, which is uh, more like, I think the best way to describe it is like a mashed potato, but you sort of um, cook it in boiling water and then you add the maize flour, which is white in color. So it's it's a meal, oh, it's a food that's shared also in Africa. With In the Southern Africa, it's called pap. In Zimbabwe, they call it uh, tsaza. Mm-hmm. So you eat that with your vegetable. So that's a staple. You also have a mix of a mix of maize and beans, which, which is common to my ethnic group. So you, you get a mix of what is common in the country and you also, to another level, you eat what, what is also common in your ethnic group. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. So quite, quite a variety. And then if you're lucky to live with other ethnic groups, you also get to try what they eat. So yeah, it depends where you live. Yeah. So is there a lot of variation in Kenya in the types of cuisine people eat? Yes, there is. Um, so moving from, from the coast, um, the, the Kenyan coast, which is the Indian Ocean, they've got a lot of influence from the Arab trade. So you'll find more rice, more spicy fish, coconut. And then as you move further mainland, then you get into your sort of soil grown food. So you've got lots of, lots of tubers, lots of vegetables. So you'll find people eating sweet potato, um, maize, which is mm-hmm. what we refer to, corn, and then your vegetables. And then sort of towards the other end of the lake, which is Lake Victoria, then you find the fish. Yeah, so there's there's quite a variation. And then you also get the pastoralist up north and sort of um, down south who depend more on meat and milk mm-hmm. and blood. I was lucky to live in an area where there were, there were schools, public, public schools, obviously, Walking, walking was a thing. We didn't have we didn't have buses to take us to and from school, so it was walking. And you do you do a half day, say from eight to one. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think what that was junior, but education was available pub, public. Also, luckily, just to say, I also lived in an area where we were closer to sort of the um, army barracks, and so as a public public service they had schools so okay. i went to one to one of the schools um that was uh, offered to the public by by the kenyan army so that that made it close but up until grade i think grade what we call standard four in the in mm-hmm. the kenyan education system as was the norm then we all got sent off to boarding school okay. so i did boarding school pretty much from when i was about nine eight nine all right. the way through to my high school so it will be three months at school and then one month at home during the whole school holidays and so throughout that up until high school and i think that was a norm for most most of the children that i grew up with but we were lucky yes to have both public schools and private schools so it was only a matter of what what could what could your parents afford if they afforded to take you to a public school? That was fine. Private school, then then you were lucky. Okay. Yeah. And what was it like to go to boarding school? Was it far away from your home? Oh yes, mine 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 was very far because again, so it was uh, two hours into the ca- into the capital city Nairobi, and just probably I would say about forty minutes off. It was very cold. 
Right. So as as a young as a young person, never liked it. Um, but you know, you get you get you get on, you get along with others, and yeah, you make friends who become your family. And then one two years into boarding school, you get used to the life, you get used to the food, you get you get used to the normal life, and you just work out. Yeah, study, and look forward to the school breaks and just go home. And because everyone else, you know, your, all your friends back home were also in boarding school. So there was really... I guess that helps, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, not missing out. So in high school, I was lucky. I was about half an hour from home. Uh-huh. So that was good. And when you finish the primary school, you have you have to select which schools you potentially want to go to. So I saw one on my list and I thought, oh, this one's close to home. Mm-hmm. It's a boarding school, yes, but I'll I'll still study hard, get get the score, or the marks, and yeah. So I was lucky that I was about half an hour from home, uh, but still a boarding school. So again, another four years of boarding school, girls girls school, and again, lucky enough, it was a, a school to service the Kenyan army. But I was lucky I got in, and yeah, again, shaped shaped up my education and life, and. Yeah, four years, done. And it's schooling, what language is schooling mainly in there? So the official language for teaching in Kenya is English. So the national language being Swahili, official language English, and then you've got um, all the other ethnic languages um, spoken in the country. It does make a difference that you're actually taught in English because then you can use it, um, allows you to easily communicate with um, so many other people from so many other countries, so yeah, good good asset to have. What were sort of your favorite things at high school? Or what did you like to study? I think I liked the languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so I quite enjoyed uh, literature. Okay. Uh, I enjoyed music. I should have listened to my music teacher seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably have a career in music. So I, yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed the languages. I also played field hockey. Okay. In school, but got into an accident that there, and then I just couldn't play for the last two years of high school. So yeah, but pretty much it. And when you finished high school, did you have, or you got to the end of high school, did you have any? idea or, or, or goal of what you wanted to do? I wouldn't say I exactly knew what I wanted. I ha- sort of had an idea. I think mm-hmm. from a very young age, I wanted to be a veterinary. Okay. <laughs> so so obviously, you know, I didn't realize how, you know, it's it's quite a profession that you really need to, to score highly in terms of marks. You really need to do well in the sciences. And then I lost I lost interest in that along, along somewhere the line. I wanted to be an environmental activist uh, that also faded. But I think having the two years pre-uni sort of shaped me and allowed me to sort of decide on what, what I wanted to do. Not completely sure, but I think for me it was sort of like a journey. I would I would take every year and every every study that I took, and sort of try and understand. All right, what what could this do for me? What how what could I see myself doing with this in future? I think it's only up until when I joined university and actually chose my course that I was I was sort of now guiding my path and like, all right, I. I could actually do this. Like this is this is my pathway. This is my career. Yeah. So what did you decide to do at uni in the end? So I chose to do social sciences mm-hmm. with a sociology major and a gender and development minor. 
So because I knew sociology was such an open field, so mm -hmm. and it had different um, different topics. So I knew, uh, you know, my dream of veterinary didn't die because I knew there was a bit of it that I could contribute to health. Um, activism hadn't died. I would probably um, I would now be, you know, an activist for maybe women or gender development issues. So it's sort of all all blended in and, you know, a further step, I think. Yeah, so the three years that I did of university, uni um, sort of shaped that. And yeah, so sort of a mix and match of a mix and match of everything. But I think up, up again, up until masters, my masters is when I thought, ah. Oh, Maybe now you really, really need to tone it down. You can't just have a mix and match career. Mm -hmm. you, need, you need to streamline it and choose what, what you want to yeah, do. You need to have a focus. Yes. <laughs> In your family, was education really pushed and encouraged? Yes, it, it was. Um, my parents made sure that we went to good schools and I probably want to say thank you to them. So I, I count myself lucky that um, I did go to good schools. And yeah, so there was no, there was no marking around. If the school fees was paid, um, all the school supplies were supplied. You just had to work. You, you had to work hard. And yeah, if you didn't work hard, there was trouble. Mm. It was definitely trouble when the, either when you went back home for your school breaks or when dad was or mom was called in for a school meeting because you were just, you know, not not working hard and yeah. Looking back, um, and I could see where possibly uh, my dad made it to college. Uh, mm -hmm. My mom doesn't really talk much about higher education. So I think there was that push to be better than what they were. Yeah. And I think that's that's where that push came from. But, you know, even among siblings, you could see parents being, all right, I think this one's not really going to do well with education. So they, they did try to support us where they could. If you, were, if you loved your books, they would support you. But regardless, there was still that you've, you've got to get the bare minimum basic of your literacy and numeracy skills get to a certain level and then from there you can decide but quite strict I have to be honest as long as like I said as long as they were paying the school fees feeding you and providing the school supplies you had to go to school and you had to study and what did your parents do actually so my dad worked in the tourism industry okay um so worked in that field for about um 30 35 years my mom I uh, was I would I would like to say the house manager <laughs> uh, but she also managed the farm um, when my father was away. So my father would leave on a Monday morning, uh, drive into the city and come back on a Friday. All so right. from Monday to Friday, you'd have mom with you. So she would be the house manager. She would call the shots uh, yeah. <laughs> and everything else between. So, yeah. <laughs> they say is... Your, a child is raised by the community. Mm -hmm. So it means, one, you normally there's no mom, dad, brother, sister. So you, in some instances, you live in a, an extended family. And, and that was the case for me. So I lived in an extended family where I, will, I lived with my mom's siblings. Okay. So yeah. it, was a big, it was a big household. I have to say there was about 14. So that was a big house. So it was fun. It had it had its own challenges, but still manageable and good. And in 
a child being raised by the community, same thing. The community raised you. So you live in a community where someone knows your parents, they know your siblings, they know your grandparents. And therefore, if you are in the wrong, they found you doing the wrong thing. They, as a community member, they had the right to smack you. Yeah. Um, and um, sort of tell you, don't do that. And later on, report it to your parent and say, I found them doing this and I smacked them. Mm. So there was that, that, there's that community sense that, you know, you look out for each other, you share. If you don't have, you share you a bit of, I'd say, exchange butter, butter trade. If you have surplus from the farm, you share. And same thing if you visit someone else and they've got surplus, you share. So there was that. So you'd only probably go into town once a week just to get what you can't grow. <laughs> I want to say there is a sense of that communalism left in some societies and in some 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 areas, but I think there's a bit there's also some bit of it that is also individual because mm-hmm. there's there's quite a number of people moving into the cities. So I think that is a matter of choice whether you choose to be part of the community or you choose to be an individual. I think it's it's not a matter of a thing of the country. I think it's more a personal thing. But in, in some areas, yes, true. By default, you just have to be part of the community. The extended family is very important. They're just, we, it's actually, we don't call them extended. That's the family. Yeah. Yeah. So there's no nuclear, there's no extended. When you say, in an African context, when you say family, it means uncles, aunties, cousins, grandparents, great, great. So that's that's family. And yes, um, in, in certain ceremonies, marriage, burial and all that, the family has to have a say. So it just depends on how either the ethnic uh, group is structured uh, and what are their ways of doing things during certain events or ceremonies. But yeah, when we talk about family and including family, it can grow from mom, dad, siblings and all the way to great-grandparents to even uncles you never met yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, yeah, yeah. they have a say so i actually moved to tasmania for work mm-hmm. so i was um previously working in victoria in melbourne so during covid i got a job offer to work in tasmania and i packed my bags and left how did the job come about like how did you um, find out about it or how did you apply? Um, so my contract in Melbourne was coming to an end and um, so sort of that was the peak of COVID I think that was sort of March, March 2020. So I saw the job offer in Tasmania on LinkedIn so I applied for that one and got that so I had to say no to my my contract in Melbourne was um, extended so I said no to that one and picked and said yes to the Tasmanian one. Well, I should mention we're in Launceston at the moment. So what were your first impressions? Launceston sort of reminds me of a particular town in my home country. Okay. Um, so the cold um, sort of uh, not so much the apples in Loni as it is in Huon Valley, but, mm. you know, the cold, the apples, the pears. So I sort of sort of felt like home. Yes, I think when you when you find something in a town that you can sort of associate or relate back to um, back from where you come from, I think you sort of get a so- sense of being at home, and that mm-hmm. that sort of allowed me to sort of settle in a little bit. 
why Australia? Or was it just that the course you wanted to do was here? Or was there a reason? Why not? Why not Australia? <laughs> I think the main thing for me, the two considerations I gave was being taught in a language that I would understand. So English, being taught in English was a big factor. Um, and also the fact that, you know, there's no harsh winters, to be honest. So mm -hmm. obviously coming from the tropics, I had experienced late winter, early spring in Europe when I had visited. So, and I thought uh, if, if I have to live with this for four years, I, I don't think I would. And I think also the time, the time frame for the, for the course. So it was about two years, no, no, two and a half for a double, double degree. Um, so that was, that was it. And you know, I, I hadn't really been to Australia. I, to be honest, when I got on the plane, I didn't, I didn't know how far it was. And other than obviously what, what you see, what you see on, on National Geographic, which I used to watch <laughs> quite a lot, I didn't, I didn't know much. So I think also for me, it was an experience, just wanting to know what, wanting that curiosity, wanting to find out what, what is this country made of? And actually when I packed my bags and left Kenya and came to Australia, I was like, all right, I'll do my two and a half years and then I'll see, I'll see what happens. Mm. You know, the, the, other than just finding the course, I hadn't done further homework on what after the studies. I knew once the studies come to an end, uh, if I can stay, I'll stay. If I cannot stay, I'll find the next country to move to. It's after graduation, um, obviously you have to make sure your papers are right. Um, so like I said earlier, I, had, I hadn't done my homework, so I just knew studying. And then I thought, oh yeah, there's postgraduate opportunity to stay and look for work. So I did that. I volunteered my time with Cancer Council in Melbourne then. So I used to do a day there, um, part-time, continued with my part-time while still looking for formal employment. Um, and I was lucky one year um, after graduation, I did, I did get offered a position to work a full on a um, a full on a full time role, so and lucky again in my field of um, study. So it's it's one thing to actually study something and get a job in something, but I was lucky I got a job in my area of study. So that's how I started um, earning my money. <laughs> yeah, and and how long did that take after you graduated before you? I'd say about twelve months. Okay. So it took me about twelve months. I wasn't I wasn't out of employment. I did have part time part time jobs, um, but you know you're all obviously looking for formal employment, more so looking for you know your area of study, so yeah. you can have that introduction to Australian the, the one the Australian workplace and actually put what you've studied into use. Yeah. yeah. So it was about twelve months. I think the f um, the two and a half years of uni, I, I think the best word is I tried to interact, to, to learn as much as I could. And it's interesting because when you come in, they, they sort of give you like a, a piece of paper that say, you know, Avo means afternoon, you know, sort of, <laughs> sort of the, yeah, the, the right. little slang um, used, the common, the common slang used in Australia to sort of this, this means that. But I think it's, it's opening, I opening yourself up and knowing in the, in the two years of uni, you're just not, not studying. You also want to understand the way of life, the social. Mm. So mm. if you sort of, um, close off yourself from that then 
down the line, you will have a problem, you know, interacting um, with others. But, you know, if you open yourself, then, you know, when someone says bring your own plate, then you won't find it shocking because you've <laughs> gone to a uni party and they've said bring your, bring a plate and you know what that means. No. Uh, but yes, there, there was there was a few differences, but not not quite on my on my part. I wouldn't say there was anything that was quite quite out there. I still find the idea of a sausage on bread <laughs> quite interesting, other than on a hot dog bun. But yeah, I'll still I'll still get a sausage at buns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I have to say, if you're from Melbourne, um, knowing a little one, two, or three things about football comes in handy. <laughs> And actually yes. having a team to support. Definitely. <laughs> yes. That social something, a social social subject to start your, your yeah. conversation in. Yeah. Football, rugby, soccer. You don't even have to like it necessarily. It just helps to have a team as a way to start a conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also vice versa because um, coming from Kenya where, you know, track field events, we're known for marathons. So I've, I've also found it the same. Where are you from? You're from Kenya. Oh, do you know so-and-so? Uh, and, you know, they mention names of people, you you know, um, long distance runners, marathon. And you're like, yeah. yeah. So also for me, it's like, oh, how do you know about them? You know, so there's that, there's that appreciation of like, we've picked interests as a migrant. I've picked interest in something in Australia and worlds there's also people in the country who've also picked um interests in things in sports from my country so yeah that's that's quite interesting yeah how are you finding launceston so far oh uh, i love it i love it probably don't even want to want to go um <laughs> go back no I, I quite quite enjoy it i now know how long it takes me from one end of town to the other <laughs> I've mastered the layout in my local supermarkets, you know, where everything else No, I think I quite enjoy it. Like I said, it does give you that sense of, it feels like home. It, mm -hmm. It's starting to feel like home. And you know, it starts to feel like home when you see interstate uh, number plates and you go, oh, you're not from here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the liking it, I think, whether COVID has been a good thing or a bad thing. It's because there wasn't much going on during COVID. Sort of life had slowed down. It it gives you a sense to appreciate that quiet time, yeah, um, yeah. downtime. Just just taking taking life slowly. Still still doing the things that you want to do. I still miss the hustle and bustle of Melbourne. To be honest, mm -hmm. uh, I miss the. the the noise of the trams, but I think I had lived that life through uni and through through work, and I didn't get to realize how f quick and fast it was until I actually got. I was like, you could actually get to work mm. at the same time without having to leave early. Yeah, you could still get work done without you know lots of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I've, I've, I've found found your good shops you found your good coffee shop you still found uh, places that you quite enjoy uh, when you want that social interaction and generally there's um, I enjoy the outdoor so mm -hmm. there is there is enough in my in my backyard I'm just the, the gorge is right at my backyard so there is there is enough to do in the town every weekend where I can I will try and get as far away from the city <laughs> as I can. So yes, um, I used to, before I relocated to Tasmania, I, since 2016, I'd visit every year. So I knew, uh -huh. I knew the places um, where I'd want to go. 
So I knew, all right, Launceston, quite central. It gives me accessibility to all the other areas. So I have done, I have done quite a few. So I've done, done the West Coast of Tasmania. I've done the South, Southwest. Um, so mainly through hiking and trekking. So whether as a day, day trip, day walk or an overnight. So yeah, I've done the East Coast um, all the way, um, starting from Maseroy Bay. Mm -hmm. all the way down to um, as far as Sorel, Pots, um, oh, Sorel. Okay. so I've done that one. West Coast, again, and obviously you little uh, day trips here and there. So, yeah, and where I have not been to, I am planning to get there. So actually yesterday I came from uh, Mount Machinson in Tala. Okay. Yeah, so okay. did that one, five, five hour walking track. Wow. So that was good. <laughs> The one thing I have found more so about the people, it's more so about, I guess, maybe the way things are done here okay. is more, say, I think you you have better luck by word of mouth here than yeah. you would formally say in Melbourne. Melbourne yeah. is formally. But I find here you get things more done. You, you find who's who. You find you find a plumber. You find who's selling the best eggs by word of mouth. Yeah. So if, if you tell someone that you're looking for something or you want something, they will definitely guide you to someone who knows someone who knows someone. Yeah. And then eventually you'll find the help that you're looking for. So yeah, word of mouth. Yeah, which which is quite which is quite good because sometimes um, or if if I look at where I come from and where I grew up, sometimes the word of mouth is is how you used to get things done. Mm. There was no you know, there's no formal process of doing things. It was, or like I said, you know, you've got surplus in the farm, you know, someone, you ask around who had, who grew this, this season and all that. So word of mouth um, does help. And I guess that's some of the bit that you sort of, oh, this actually does feel like more like home. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not in a bad way, but yeah, it, it just makes you, gives you a sense of belonging and you sort of get comfortable. <laughs> So I work in project management in the primary healthcare setting. So that means um, not directly, you know, managing projects that either have to deal with health promotion, um, allied health. So that's that's my area of work. So uh, implementing new projects, managing ongoing projects. Um, so that's what that's what that's my everyday. That's my nine to five. So does that mean you're involved in trying to promote good health practices, like in public health? Well, this this is not in public health, although it, it does cut across um, when you when you sort of bring in a health promotion program. But it's more so uh, primary healthcare settings. So allied health, you're dealing with say people who need um, help managing their chronic conditions. Say they've okay. got they need to manage their diabetes um, so run programs on that so mainly I'm on the back end um, of it so you've got your um, front workforce doing doing all the one-on-one -on -one, face to face but for me it's at the back end managing the projects thinking what can we do what projects can we implement that could benefit this population group how can we change things um, if if something's not working what, what can we work what what else can we try that's that's going to make it work yeah <laughs>